Well, welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen. I am sitting here with apparently notorious cat hater Kevin Williamson, which about two minutes, two seconds before I press record uh, was revealed to me. We'll perhaps do a podcast in the future on cats, perhaps an Oxford Union-style debate on the merits and of cats. Either way, it is a, an overcast day, and it doesn't look as if it's going to improve, but at least it's not cold. It's not cold. On the subject of cats, we should ask our, uh, our noted Hollywood correspondent, David Kahane. Uh, for his views Does on he cats. He dislike cats too. He is uh, fairly intense on the issue. In fact, uh, if you post a cat picture on uh, Facebook, he will unfriend you. He's uh, very, very anti-cat. Jonah Goldberg is reasonably anti-cat, although yeah. I think he's more pro-dog. It's a little how you would have uh, people in the 80s who would ally with the conservative movement because they hated the communists. Right. And they weren't necessarily friendly towards the conservatives in the way that that we might be. Or the you know, crazy white supremacists who say, well, we're not anti-black, we're just pro-white. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. Jonah is a crazy white supremacist. In Kevin Williamson's words, I think that's a direct quote. I think quote. that's Media Matters if you're listening. <laughs> I got a new Twitter follower from Media Matters the other day. I noticed some uh, looks like about 11-year-old girl. Uh, so Media Matters researcher who's not following me, so I assume I'm... You know, on her beat. I love that this silly, discredited political hack site that is staffed by not especially bright and extraordinarily dishonest 20-somethings. Jonah's line is 20-somethings who couldn't get a job with the DNC. Has appropriated the language of the university. Researchers. Research fellow. Yes, that's always a, always. Oliver a Willis, the stupidest man with a modem, is a research fellow. Man, stupidest man with a modem is is a pretty high hurdle to clear. I got to tell you. Now. Well, he manages it well, day in day out. Well, who are your nominees? It's a long, long list. Starting with, I'm sure they have modems over at the Veterans Administration. Awkward segue. <laughs> that and, was the uh, worst segue we've ever done. <laughs> um, I'm working on my awkward segues. So, um, you and I both wrote in very different ways uh, over the last day or two about the horrific problems with the VA hospitals, about which you have a pretty well-informed point of view, not because you know a lot about the VA, but because you know a lot about government-run hospitals, being unfortunately born a British subject in that formerly free and proud kingdom. So, your views on this situation? Well, the National Health Service, which has been Britain's single-payer medical system since the late 1940s, is in fact almost identical in the way that it's run to the VA. Progressives get angry with conservatives when they compare Obamacare to, say, the NHS, which is a reasonable objection because the two things are not the same. And they also get angry with me when I oppose their plans for single payer on the basis of my experiences with the National Health Service. And there is some truth in the contention that the National Health Service and single-payer as a concept are not the same thing. 
uh, single payer can operate as it does in, say, France, where the government is the single payer. And we should stop calling it single payer. We should call it government uh, paid for or government run. Yeah, it's not like the single payers ever healthcare. someone else. No, right. The, we like, this say, is Bob. Bob's really rich. He's going to be our single payer. Yeah, we should say who the who the single payer is. But France has such a system, but all of the hospitals are privatized. Uh, Britain, on the other hand, not only has the government as to the single payer, but the government runs and operates the hospitals and employs all of the staff. Now, this is exactly how the VA works as well. And it's worth saying that although I understand why progressives get a little irritated when conservatives compare, say, Obamacare to the NHS, and I understand to a lesser extent why they're keen to distinguish single-payer per se from the NHS, you cannot either distinguish the VA from the NHS nor cover up that luminaries within the left have held the VA up as a model, among them Paul Krugman, who did not just endorse the VA as a model, but said that precisely because the government ran the hospitals and employed the staff, it was a model. Ezra Klein named it uh, alongside the NHS as one of the world's best healthcare systems uh, back, I think, in 2011. And then the usual suspects of Bernie Sanders and so forth have held the VA up. Now, when Americans hear promises that because the government not only funds the system but runs the system, that all of these supposedly nefarious incentives disappear... Profit. Yeah. Then many of them, I imagine, would be tempted to see that as a good thing. I see that largely as a bad thing, in part because it creates a monopoly, and in part because that monopoly is held and run and enjoyed by the people who have all of the guns, at least in England. Well, the thing that always drives me crazy about that particular line of thought is that uh, people assume if you remove profit as a motive um, in a formal sense, there's nothing else that's going to come in and fill up that vacuum. And, of course, this is why people should be reading public choice theory and and other stuff like that, because people don't seek to be self-interested, utility-maximizing economic actors when they go to work for the government or when they go to work for a non-profit Mm. Or when they, um, you know, work outside of the explicitly and formally profit-driven structure, they've got motives of their own, as we know, which apparently include sloth and uh, and uh, and also financial motives because you get bonused based on things like you know certain kinds of performance metrics and those things, which is why teachers cheat on standardized tests uh, because they get paid according to uh, to how they do. So even though they're in a non-profit setting, they still got their own you know selfish narrow interests, and they're still going to be in effect. The difference is, in a profit-oriented setting, you ultimately have to compete with other people to make your customers happy. Mm. So, I mean, it's the old Adam Smith thing of maybe your motives aren't necessarily public or selfless, but they end up operating in a way that effectively is, you know, social rather than antisocial, simply because people have a choice, unlike in the VA and government-run hospitals, and, and because you have competitors out there who want to steal your customers, so you have to keep them happy. Now, there are, you know, situations, and I think this is partly, I think there may be a sort of a large society, small society dynamic going on here, because there are places that have successfully, decently run public hospital systems. I'm thinking especially of Singapore, 
which uh, doesn't have a single-payer system per se, although they do have a uh, government-run health insurance scheme, but they do have a system of uh, public hospitals in Singapore that people can walk into and get various kinds of care. Now, they don't work the way people expect them to work, and they don't work the way the NHS works, for instance, which that they have uh, relatively large copays. So even if you're under government coverage in Singapore, when you go to the hospital, when you go to the emergency room, when you go to a doctor, your out-of-pocket costs are still substantial. I think they typically run around 20-25% of, uh, of the total cost. So it's, it's a different kind of system. And uh, But, you know, Singapore is a small city-state uh, filled up with Singaporeans. Um, they tend to be fairly effective and efficient managers and tend to have fairly transparent and reliable uh, public institutions. One of the reasons for that is, is, is cultural, of course, which is that um, punishment, you know, for things like fraud, and we right. have tons of entitlement fraud, is severe there. And it's not just formal, but it's also cultural. You know, if you're, if you're caught sort of slacking off, uh, it's, uh, it's a severe judgment on your character with, with social consequences. We don't have that here. You know, we've got 317 million people, uh, or whatever it is, and it's, it's difficult in a you know large, spread out, chaotic, diverse society to do the sorts of things that you can manage in a small Nordic country, or in a place like Singapore, um, or you know a small Western European country like uh, like, like Switzerland. So um, I think that's part of the dynamic here. But part of it also, I think, is there are just some unique things about American institutions, American public institutions, that simply make them defective. Well, we we tend to focus on what governments do to healthcare, and that's obviously one of the component parts here. The veterans in question either died waiting for treatment or have been lied to by their own government. And so when conservatives critique the NHS or the VA, the argument tends to go you don't want the government running your health care because the government will end up running health care like it runs the DMV. So you have P.J. O'Rourke, I think, with the line that if you think health care is expensive now, just wait until the government's running it. And, and the corollary line you hear on the right is if you hate your insurance company, wait until the government is your insurance company. Yeah. O'Rourke's line is if you think health care is expensive now, just wait till it's free. Just wait till it's free, right. But to me, the, the more important question long term is not what government does to healthcare, but what healthcare ends up doing to government. Because it, it's not only important what it does to government for free societies, but it ends up creating a vicious cycle in which the healthcare gets worse and the government gets worse, and it spirals down to the vanishing point. And what I mean by that is that because the government is a, a monopoly and the government has no competitors, as you said, the focus for politicians who end up running the nation's healthcare system is to protect themselves. And so when things go wrong, as we've seen at the VA, the impetus is not to improve outcomes, but is to improve perceived outcomes. And it was bizarre reading these stories uh, of fudged numbers and secret waiting lists uh, because everyone in England who is prepared to look past the cult that is the National Health Service knows full well that 
annual audit after annual audit reveals that there are uh, hundreds of instances uh, of such fraud. In fact, last year's revealed that 25% of all government statistics relating to healthcare were fudged. And if I could just explain how this tends to work. Mrs. Jones needs a hip replacement. So Mrs. Jones calls up the National Health Service and says she wants her hip replaced. The National Health Service says, that's fine, call us back in three months. Mrs. Jones calls back in three months and is then given an appointment two days later. The government then says that they saw Mrs. Jones within 48 hours. The Prime Minister stands up in the House of Commons and says that his reforms are working and that uh, this elderly lady was seen within 48 hours. Isn't that lovely? Mrs. Jones, of course, didn't get her appointment or her hip replaced within 48 hours. She got it replaced within three months and 48 hours. But by screwing with the statistics and dishonestly reporting how the healthcare system works, the government gets to protect itself. Now, that's a problem for two reasons. Firstly, because Mrs. Jones in the equation doesn't get the care that she's told that she's going to get. And secondly, because it leads to a situation in which the Prime Minister of Great Britain and Northern Ireland is answering questions in the House of Commons as to why some woman in Hull didn't get her elbow looked at on time on the 3rd of March 2013. That's not the sort of political culture that you want in a free country. You want to fracture power. You want to push power out to the people who know how to use it. And it strikes me that watching the president try and run away from this and watching Congress put reasonable pressure on the cabinet Uh, Secretary for the Veterans Administration is precisely what happens in England, except in England it's for everybody. And so we don't end up talking about drug companies and doctors and medical procedures and hospitals. We end up talking about politicians, and that's never a good thing with something as intimate as healthcare. Yeah, not to go all VDH on you here, but um, you had a very uh, analogous situation uh, in the late Roman Republic of the Early Empire where you had essentially a government monopoly on corn and uh, grains. And so there were public granaries that would distribute uh, foodstuffs to uh, the, you know, the poorer half of, of Roman society, people who couldn't uh, buy their own food and such. And one of the reasons they couldn't buy their own food, of course, is because government controlled trade in that. And so you end up with a sort of Quentin Tarantino Mexican standoff mutual hostage situation where the government, when it wants to goose people, the lower classes in a certain direction, can threaten to withhold grain, but then you also have the lower classes threatening to riot when, uh, if there's a problem with trade, which there frequently was between, you know, Rome and its suppliers in Egypt and, and other places. So, um, you know, each side using that uh, bottleneck relationship to try to coerce the other. And I think you see, you know, roughly the same thing in, in the entitlement programs and in healthcare and such, where the Democrats will come out every few years and, uh, you know, Put, publish an ad with Paul Ryan pushing grandma off the cliff and that sort of stuff and try to terrify the poor and saying, if you don't do what we want you to do right. politically, you're going to lose your benefits. But then you also have, you know, voters on the other side uh, operating in their own kind of, you know, coercive manner saying, uh, you know, don't you dare touch this stuff or there'll be, be revolt. So um, you end up with <clears throat> at least one political party and uh, part of the other one and, and a general political tendency tied into these bad, inefficient, ineffective, and in the case of the VA, uh, psychotically cruel programs. And on the other side, you've got 
voters and uh, people in, in the general body politic who are extremely risk averse, they're afraid of change, they prefer inefficient and ineffective but guaranteed programs to uh, more innovative and effective programs that don't have those same sorts of political guarantees behind them. And uh, so you end up with you know big sectors of the economy and big sectors of social life you know stagnating. And that's where you have this you know really bizarre situation that uh, you know I, I've written about a lot in the last couple of weeks where you effectively live in two worlds where you know you go to the DMV where you go to the VA, where you go to the social security office, um, you deal with a public school, and it's like being in the 19th century or maybe the 1930s, and then everything else in society feels mm. like you know the Jetsons, as, as Thomas Friedman would put it, and um, and it's goofy. And at some point, you know, I hope that it's going to occur to people that you have a choice about which direction you take certain institutions. You know, I use Friedman's Flintstones versus Jetsons things. You can push things in one way, or you can push them in the other. Uh, the VA is pretty clearly a Flintstones type situation that needs to be be pushed in the in the direction of reform and innovation, but people are genuinely afraid well, of doing that. I have a question for you, a long long question in in some ways masquerading as a speech uh, <laughs> for you on on this one. Jonah made a good point on the corner the other day by way of William Sapphire that when you have almost universal support for a program such as veterans health care you're not going to get effective oversight and the lack of naysayers affects the outcomes in some way and I think it's a good point but I would say this there are few philosophies in which veterans would not be looked after if you take even libertarian-tinged conservatism such as mine and yours, as I understand it, we are not wholly against government helping the weak or those who cannot help themselves. We do, however, draw distinctions and insist upon these distinctions between the population as a whole and those who have some defining characteristic, which means that they either got their ailments in the service of the state or because of state action. For example, a SWAT team bursts into the wrong house and shoots you in the leg. Mm. Not or, that ever happens. Right. Uh, or, or because you, you have joined the military and then they have put you in, in harm's way. Or because maybe you're disabled or mentally ill or even elderly. Or a child. Or a child. And we draw an important distinction between a 12-year-old with Down syndrome and a 32-year-old computer programmer with two kids in Seattle. We want, the way I like to put it, the net to be something into which people fall. So you lose your job or you get cancer or you join the military and are maimed or even not maimed but you are put on moment's notice that you can be sent around the world to be shot at rather than in Europe where by the mere fact of your existence the net envelops you and you use the National Health Service whether you are rich or poor, young or old and whatever your station in life and I can't find many strands of conservatism in which we would exclude veterans so yes that causes a problem but it's unavoidable my question is 
obviously we would say there are some elements of government that are going to be inefficient, but we have to have them and so we will pay the price of inefficiency. For example, you can't really privatize or voucherize or send back to the states the military. And very few people think we shouldn't have a military. So you just accept, you do your best, but you just accept there's going to be inconsistencies, there's going to be inadequacies, there's going to be corruption. What can we actually do except implore the American electorate mm -hmm. not to expand it to the nation at large? What can we actually do about the VA? Or do we just have to throw up our hands and say, we all agree we need to do this, government has to do it, government is inefficient, therefore it's going to suck? Yeah, well, that's a bit of what my piece is about today, which you know is asking the question of how confident should we be that the policies we choose are going to produce the effects we want? And uh, you know, the more complex the system is, and the more complex the solution is, then the less confidence you can have in getting something like the outcomes you want. The example I always use on this, and I've probably done it on the podcast a few times before, so forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but is uh, the difference between state-operated farms and food stamps. So if our goal is we want to help people who are poor or going through a hard time not to be hungry, how do we go about getting food to them? Well, the VA model and the public school model would say, let's have federally run farms and ranches and slaughterhouses and grocery stores and warehouses and distribution networks so that we can produce food and get it to people who are hungry. Well, that's one way of doing it. And uh, I don't imagine in the context of American institutions that would work very well. But the other way of doing it is saying, well, we're just going to give them vouchers, which is what we call food stamps. Now, understanding there are going to be unintended consequences and fraud and other things associated with that. But if you look at the one and say, well, let's have a government-operated system of production, distribution of food versus let's give poor people vouchers to buy food, which one of these is likely to be most disruptive? Which one is likely to produce all sorts of severe unintended consequences, when the, which in this case probably would be famine? Uh, so anytime you can move from the government, particularly the federal government, directly providing a service to the federal government simply funding that service, understanding that you will get fraud, you will get abuse, you will get disincentives and distortion in the marketplace and all that stuff, you're still probably on net going to make an improvement uh, moving from the one to the other rather than moving in the opposite direction, which is from you know federal price supports or uh, federal uh, subsidies rather for <clears throat> consumption of certain goods and services to federal provision of it, which is what we're doing in healthcare. Uh, where we're inching ever closer to having the government actually, if not operating clinics and hospitals, operating insurance companies, or in effect operating them by micromanaging them and regulating them at such a detailed level that they become essentially like government-owned utilities. Uh, so, you know, I think that uh, if you look at how do we leave ourselves just on net better off, assuming that there's no, you know, perfect or utopian solution to any problem, you can have a fairly high level of government funding of all sorts of things, from education to healthcare subsidies to, you know, veterans' benefits, which I think, you know, veterans' benefits are just, that's the deal people make when they sign up for the military, you know, that we're going to take care of certain things for you right. uh, in exchange for you doing this. I mean, that's just a, you know, that's just a contractual sort of thing, and of course I think we should honor that. But, you know, rather than doing all the things that we do, we could probably have at least as generous, if not a more generous level of funding for all sorts of things, from healthcare subsidies to education, 
if we would get government largely out of the business of trying to deliver and operate these systems and just simply into the business of paying for it. So, obviously, that, that is something that I want to do on, on principle across the board as well, and anyone who listens to this will be unsurprised to hear me say that. But what is the downside here? I mean, there must be a strong argument against, say, voucherizing or privatizing the VA. What is it? Well, I can't think of one in the case of the VA. Now, I can think of some other <clears throat> situations. You, know, you mentioned the obvious ones like military and law enforcement, uh, where you're probably not going to want to take that approach. I think that... Um, Although, it, you know, I should say, to argue against myself, the military, to some extent, has taken that approach with outsourcing of well, yeah, certain, core functions. Yeah, certain and, things they do. And... Um, and I think that, uh, I mean, largely, in, in, in the most broad sense, the the starting place for that is making the distinction between public goods and non-public goods. Uh, most people don't understand that. It's, you know, sort of Econ 101. But uh, there are certain things that are obviously identifiable as public goods, uh, law enforcement and military being, you know, two of the sort of cardinal classic examples of that. Now... While I personally would prefer to have a government that's only involved in public goods, there are all sorts of non-public goods that the government's involved in, education being the most obvious example of that, and healthcare being another. You know, there's no reason you really can't offer some funding for those things, the same way that I'm generally friendly toward, you know, federal support for university-based fundamental science research and that sort of thing. You know, you don't have to have an ideological, ideologically pure utopian outcome to produce... Uh, substantial gains and improvements from where we are. So, you know, I take a kind of negotiating point of view. So, um, as long as we have a military, and I think we'll probably always have a military, we're always going to have veterans, and as long as we have veterans, we're probably going to want to do things to care for them in exchange for the extraordinary service that they offer to the country. Um, but if you look at the VA and the way it's organized, was it 314,000, 319,000 employees? Yeah, more, more. I think it was three, four, 340 or 360,000. Yeah, this this huge bureaucracy with all these people. You know, you can if you're just writing checks out of the Treasury to offset veterans' medical bills, uh, you can do a lot for what that sort of thing costs. Yeah, it, something that interested me was that the first response on the left to this story was, well, we need to increase funding. Right. And it reminded me of our conversation about schools in that the right is, is free to suggest, let's voucherize it, let's privatize the hospitals, and then we can talk about funding. Yeah. But the left really isn't free ideologically to do that. It has to be an issue of funding because, as Jonah noted... And in fact, I forget who wrote it now, but someone on the left very quickly wrote, someone prominent on the left, that Obama needs to be seen to fix this because it is an indictment of his vision of government. Yeah. They can't really turn around ideologically and philosophically and say, well, of course, this is a problem with government running healthcare. Yeah. And now the only, the only two options, therefore, that are left is, well, it was bad management. And that incidentally, is the other one that we hear in Britain all the time. Well, we just need to change the managers. We just need this expert or this leader, and it will be fixed. Or we need more money. Yeah. And, and it struck me that that is very similar to the school conversation that we have. It's always funding. But of course, 
the only way that funding ever helps in a school or in a healthcare situation is if the the end user gets that money. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, in so many instances <clears throat> with schools and, and the Veterans Administration, that's just not the case. Yeah, well, over the course of just a little more than a decade, you know, from 20, 2001 to 2013, I guess it was, we just about tripled right. spending in the VA. You know, my piece today is about is about that very issue you touch on, which is that the left can never admit, and some people on the right have trouble with this too, that um, there are real limits on what government actually can do. We're always talking about what government should do, but we mm. don't talk nearly as much about what government can do. So I you know, dip a little toe into complexity science today and talk about um, inherently unpredictable systems of which healthcare markets are one. Well, markets in general are one. And uh, not to go you know, too far into the weeds in this, although I did write, I guess, 3,300 words about it today, which you can take your time and read and enjoy, but... Um, there are certain things that uh, that are not even in principle predictable. Uh, markets being one of those things, systems of economic production, whether it's healthcare or education or other or other sorts of things, being being other examples of that. So when government comes in and says we're going to manage this. Uh, being able to management assu- to manage it assumes at a certain level being able to understand it, to anticipate it, and this is simply something that is factually, empirically speaking, not possible. And uh, so that, in addition, just to a preference for simpler solutions, is why you want things like food stamps rather than government-run farms, because then you're not really interfering with the market's ability to process these. You're sort literally of just systems. transferring wealth, right? So you have you know a complex problem, which is the distribution and production of food. You have a complex solution, which is the market and all the things that the market stands for that evolve to do that. And you can have some influence over how that works without actually interfering with the process, which is simply by putting vouchers in the pockets of people who don't have enough money for food. And I mean, you'll have some distortion in the marketplace, but it's not going to be huge or fundamental as opposed to having government try to operate a system. Uh, you can do the, virtually the same thing with you know healthcare, whether it's for veterans or for the population at large. You don't have to have the government trying to be in control to get better outcomes. And in fact, the idea that something that somebody needs to be in charge of something, someone needs to be some central authority making final decisions about what we have to offer in health insurance programs. You know what sort of benefits have to be covered. How much can they cost, and how can we make decisions about who's covered and who isn't? That model of thinking is, in and of itself, the most significant problem to reforming those systems. Uh, anytime you've got the idea that someone has to be in charge, this has to be run by some sort of central authority, you're going to end up getting bad outcomes because it's it's the nature of those systems, where you've got um, you know essentially a system that can't learn, that can't reform that can't process new information, which all in these sort of monopolistic, uh, heavily structured government programs are, just by their nature, dealing with dealing with problems that are extraordinarily complex and fast-moving and developing. Uh, you know, I mean, the obvious example being Social Security, which is messed up not because it hasn't been run right, but because it's a program that was set up to deal with 1930s realities uh, that's still fundamentally the same in 2014. So Chris Hayes, we should probably finish on this question. Mm. Chris Hayes yesterday said that if conservatives believe that the VA needs reform and privatization and possibly voucherizing, 
why doesn't it introduce a bill to do just that? It's a good question. Yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, House Republicans should do that. And then, of course, it will die because the Senate is Democratic and Barack Obama's in the White House. And is it a winning issue, do you think? Uh, reforming the VA at this point, maybe. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not very good at, at forecasting what's going to excite people politically. Um, I tend to think everyone should be interested in what I'm interested in to the exact degree that I am. And as it turns out, the world doesn't actually work that way. And, uh, you know, I look at the, the bestseller lists of what people actually buy and read mm. or watch what the actual, you know, most popular shows are on television. And I just have to conclude that I'm actually a representative of a different civilization who was dropped off by a stork in a basket here uh, at some point. So people don't get excited about what I'm getting excited about. Maybe they should. Maybe they, they shouldn't. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a huge issue. You've got a lot of dead veterans um, who didn't need to be dead. You've got people, you know, dying from gangrene when we've been, you know, effectively treating that since the Civil War or thereabouts. Uh, so this is, you know, it's it's a, it's a it's a huge huge uh, issue. But you know, again, what's going to command the attention of the electorate is always a mystery to me. Well, let me finish by running through all of the popular National Health Service reforms that conservatives will get through over the next 10 years. 